this is one of those Sundays where I have, uh, and it's always a little bit of an awkward task of talking about private stuff in a really public setting. So I, I hope over the years I've done a reasonably good job of, of kind of saying, okay, this is important, this needs to come into the church, this doesn't. And we tried to steward that for, you know, so many years with just the kids and what's going on there. Really with Susan's sickness and kind of navigating our way through that, what are the things that, that, that need to be said? And, and then silence is good too. Even when my heart condition, as many of you know, I stared down death earlier this year and um, just faced it head on and didn't blink. Death blinked. Um, but I share that. This is one of those things that I know needs to, to, to come in, and we want to talk about it in here, but it's awkward. It's just awkward, and, and, and maybe that will become clear to you. I had the chance to talk to the staff on Tuesday, and then Thursday night, I spoke with 250, 300 of the, of the kind of volunteers that are part of Third Thursday, and then now to you today, so all four services today. So I bring you what is, for me, really good news, and I hope you see it that way as well, is this Friday, so the 25th, five days from today, I'm going to get married. And so, uh, now, and so I also know coming in that, that some of you come in and you know about it, some of you kind of have an inkling that, that, that maybe I've been hanging out with Sandy, and some of you are... are I mean, this is cold on you, and you're going, what's going on? Some of you are going, I don't care, get to the Bible lesson. Um, but, but, but I know the ones that do care, and they need this moment, so we're going to make sure they get it. Uh, if I was you listening to that, I have a whole bunch of questions, but they're kind of two big buckets uh, that I would get into, and, and, and one of them is, uh, you know, this seems kind of quick. This seems perhaps quick in two ways. Number one, since Susan passed away, number two, how long have you known this lady? And, and so the answer is, I really haven't known her that long. And now that I say that out loud, I'm starting to doubt this whole thing. I haven't <laughs> thought about it to this point. But um, part of just the personal sojourn, and it's been fun. Susan Miller's been great because in both instances, she had an opportunity to speak with as kind of Susan's best friend and give an in inside perspective. But, but there was really a time for me of, of seven years, but the last three and the last two and the last one in particular where lots of grieving and lots of hardship was done in that time. Those are painful, difficult times. So there's a sense even where emotionally and discussions with Susan and lots of things made, made it, okay, I'm kind of ready for life, though I honestly was not necessarily ready for this. And, and, and I would like you go, but this is faster than I would have expected. So I share, your, I share that. The big question is, how are the girls with this? That's a big question because, you know, you guys are all right, but you aren't the key deciders in this deal. Um, how are the girls? So, and, and it's awkward is an operative word because, you, you know, I started, I, Sandy and I were together like a couple times doing stuff, and then I thought, I don't even know where to bring this in because I'm not sure where this is going. I don't know what it's going to do, but I, I'm fairly visible, and somebody's going to say, I saw you at uh, Keegan's having dinner, and they're going to say to Sarah, what is, what is that? Haley, what is that? And then they don't know, and then that's awkward. So I said to the girls, listen, I don't know but I'm, I'm dating, and they said, who is it? And they didn't know Sandy, and I said, well, neither did I until, you know, not too long ago. And uh, I said, you, I think you guys should meet. So it's the reversal of when they would come and say, Dad, I got this guy, and I would say, well, tell me about this loser, and then they would unpack it. And so, so there was a meeting set up with Sarah and Haley and Sandy, and, and Sarah couldn't be there, just scheduling. But I said, I think you need to go ahead and meet anyway. So nervous. 
And then when the meeting was, I assumed, over, my phone rang. It was Sandy. And then right on top of it was Haley. And so I said, Sandy, I'll call you back. I need to talk to Haley. So Haley just met her, and they just spent an hour and a half or whatever it was together. And, she, and, and this is exactly, and this is, these are the first words. Dad, she's perfect. She's just like mom. She would be mom's best friend. She's awesome. Uh, and she's, she's amazing. Now, that's initial impression since then. Um, the relationship is really deepened. So the girls are terrific. The guest book will be real simple. I can tell you who's in the guest book right now. Sarah, Tim, Haley, Tyler. So it'll be really easy. Uh, the girls will be there. Sarah was here first hour, so I had a chance to let her share a few things and, and pray for us. But uh, I wasn't going to do this originally, but I saw how the week progressed in what seemed to make everything a little bit, at least more kind of get your arms around it, was meeting Sandy. So I figured, uh, though it's, it's arduous to do four of these, uh, I just, I, you know, on her anyway, I just thought it'd be good. So welcome Sandy as she comes, would you? Um, she, she told Dave, we were talking to Dave Newquist before, and, and this was like the third time we've done it, so you would think it's rehearsed, but it's fairly spontaneous, and you don't know any of the questions. Full disclosure, you don't know any of the questions, do you? Well, some are predictable, like this one. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow <laughs> up, and your family, and all that yeah, stuff? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up Here, in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you. I'm just helping. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and... Um, uh, Born and raised there. So I was there uh, until about five and a half years ago when I moved here. Uh, my family, um, not believers. I have three siblings, and for the most part, they're all in St. Louis. And you came out here to work? Yeah, I came out here for work. Um, I received a phone call from ASU, uh, a headhunter from, from, that was hired by the university, and they... Um, they said, have you ever been to Phoenix? And I said, no. And they said, do you know anything about ASU? And I said, well, what is that? And they said, Arizona State University. I said, oh, okay. And so you came out and what, what were you hired to do? Yeah, I was hired, um, I came out as a fundraiser for the School of Engineering. And I did that for about three years. And then I moved over into one of our research units um, in, in uh, initially part of the School of Sustainability and now part of the overall research wing um, at ASU and we um, do some really cool stuff and sustainability planning for solar development, water um, issues, those sorts of things. Yeah, it is. Where people it are glazing really over. Boring. But yeah. it is, I will give you this. It's hard to explain, but it's great when you see it. It is. It's a really cool place. We create these really cool visualizations and environments so that decision makers can make better decisions. Um, talk about maybe just us getting to. How old are you? Because people are asking me that because they want to know. They all look at you. What is <laughs> yeah, it? 29. Oh, no, wow. This is 47. 47. Okay, because I've had several people say, geez, she looks young. And I said, but that's because she's standing next to me. So I look old. That's why she looks young. So uh, talk a little bit about maybe kind of how, how we kind of met and just that. I don't even know what that question means. Good luck. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so we met. Um, actually, I, I um, served here and, and attended here um, until about last May. And then... May, June of last year, I, I moved over um, to the Tempe campus and started uh, working and, and serving um, with Ricardo Stewart and others over there. And um, 
Tom was in conversation with them and asked uh, who who was in key or doing things over yeah, there. Who they and, saw as key leaders. Yeah, and uh, and my name came up, and um, out of just an encouragement, and and um, at the same time last year, I was. Um, I had, I had a few different job offers to move out of the Phoenix area. Um, so Tom wanted or asked if maybe it would help if, if we got together, help Tempe if we got together. And, and he just primarily, I guess, wanted to let me know that I was important or something. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I think that's okay. what it was. Okay. Yeah, that was the whole so, intent. Yeah. So we so we got together for coffee, and um, and it was just a very um, or seemed to be a very normal conversation. And what we found in that conversation was that we talked, and then we talked, and then we talked, and then we kept talking. And we actually had a, here we are had a date. We did. Well, that kind of that first one. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. He did. He called me up, and he said, um, and this was early on. Um, he called up and he said, uh, hey, um, you know, I'm thinking maybe we could, like, go grab a bite to eat or something. And I said, okay. And when I got off the phone, I realized that, like, he had asked me out on a date. I know. It was cool. That's when I realized it was after we got off the phone that yeah. I'd asked her out on a date. So, so we just start hanging out, and uh, probably there's some key moments along the way. Um, one of them was several weeks into it when you revealed or really confronted me on something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, when I came out here, I didn't know anyone. As I said before, I had never really been to Phoenix before. And so when I moved, I came out by myself uh, with my dog, and I, had, I knew no one for 1,500 miles. So it was just, just me and my dog. My dog's name is Humphrey, by the way. And um, so it, by this time, you know, a couple, few, four weeks or something into this, Tom had asked me many questions. I mean, absolutely everything, blood type and, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, this is Tom we're talking about. Um, but he had never once said a word about my dog. Now, and, I, and I've heard the, heard the guy talk, heard Tom talk for quite a few years. So I kind of thought maybe this was an issue for him. So we're on the phone, and I said, you know, Tom, I noticed that you, you've never said anything about my dog. And, and he does a, uh, yeah, that's a problem. It's a deal breaker, in fact. And so, um, yeah, so we had to kind of talk through that, and um, the dog is no longer living here. Yeah. Uh, he's in, we he's put in him St. down. <laughs> no, we didn't put the dog down. He, he is safely in St. Louis with my father. So let's tell that story. Let's tell because this will give us a glimpse into your family. Yeah. So how you you, you kind of not before you told him about Humphrey, you went home to tell your your folks that we were getting married. My yeah. mother doesn't know, by the way. Yeah, we're not. We're gonna tell my mother. We're taping this. I'm gonna tell my mother a little bit. Where are you gonna save it as a surprise for my mom? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. we wanted to tell your folks. Yeah. So um, the the week after Easter, I, I flew home to St. Louis to um, to give them the news. Um, and as as Tom said, this is you know it's kind of awkward um, at at our ages and everything. How do you how do you say, wow, I, you know, I'm getting married and and um, I really hadn't dated for. Um, really since I, since I was saved, um, so for about eight years. So people no longer, especially my family, no longer really asked about 
dating or, or anything like that. So I needed not only to tell them that I was dating, but also to tell them that I was getting married. Um, so I'm at my dad's house. We're hanging out, piddling around the house and stuff. And um, he and, and so I said, Dad, I, I have some news to share with you. And he said, oh, really? And I said, yeah. I said, well, I met this guy, and, and we started talking, and then we kept talking, and now we're going to get married. And he said, oh. And he said, but what about Humphrey? And, and I said, well, yeah, that's part of it. Humphrey, we're going to have to find another home for Humphrey, and I don't know what I'm going to do with them. And so he thought for about a half a second, and he said, well, if nobody else will take Humphrey, I'll take Humphrey. And I said, oh, that's great to know. And uh, he starts you know, looking around the house, and he gets a sketch pad out to, to, you know, work on the electric fence, and now, by the way, he has not asked anything about who this guy is, or nothing. Didn't even ask my name. Nothing, not even his name. Um, so, so this goes on, and he's consumed with the thought of the dog coming. Um, so the next morning, and, and still he hasn't asked any other questions, the next morning he uh, wakes up, and I'm, I'm heading over, um, to see other family members. So we, traditionally, we always go and get Chinese food. So we're at the Chinese restaurant. We have our food in front of us. And he says, well, let's get back to the big news. And I said, yeah, I'm getting married. And he said, no, 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 Humphrey. Let's talk about Humphrey. Yeah, that, that was it. He never did ask. No, he never did ask. That's, it's awesome. He, we're, he does we're now close. know we're that so his close. name is Tom Schrader. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. He knows a little bit more now. But. So the dog's there, the dog's safe, and we're happy about that. So, uh, tell, uh, you came from an unbelieving home. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about coming to know Christ. Yeah, I, um, well, as I said, I was saved um, eight years ago, and um, I had no friends that were believers, um, knew, never had a Bible, knew, knew nothing um, about all of that. And so, um, life came crashing down on me. Um, I just, um, I felt empty and hollow, and, and although it seemed on the outside that I was successful in my career, and, and I, I have a, a beautiful daughter who's, who's 27 now. She was in her, her, um, teen years, and, and that was traumatic, and, um, so, so uh, it was just bad. I was just broken and a mess and, and um, uh, didn't, didn't know anything, didn't know what to do next. So um, middle of the afternoon in, in April um, in St. Louis, the sun is shining. Um, I'm driving down the highway and, um, you know, just crying and, and upset and messed up and broken. And um, there's a terrible hailstorm, and the, the hail is pounding down on my car. All the cars are stopped, and, and between that and, and just life, I just said, you know, if, there is a, if there's a God, I, I need you here. I don't know, don't know how to go on. And um, so at that moment, I just felt his presence, and I was like, okay, so there is a God. Um, and as the hailstorm stopped, I... Um, started my car up and went home and prayed and said, I really don't know what this means or what do I do next. So I said, you know, God, I know, I know that you're here, but you'll have to show me with baby steps what comes next. Um, and so two days later, I was meeting my girlfriend at a park to run. And she called, and we, we would get together at 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And she called and said, my kids are sick. I can't, can't meet you at the park. I said, okay. So I went to the park, and as I'm pulling in, there's a 
sweet old man at the entrance to the park, and he tries to stop my car, and um, I'm crying and, and still, you know, just really upset. And um, so I, I just kept on going. Um, and I parked my car, tied my shoes, got out to run, stopped in um, at the restroom, came out of the, the building where the restroom was, and the man is now at the door waiting for me. And he hands me a Bible and tells me that Jesus loves me. So I take the Bible, and I'm too stunned to really say anything. So I go back to my car, and I said, wow, okay, I, I know that there's a God. I, I know that you're here with me. Um, I know that it has something to do with the Bible. Um, but I don't know what next, so I'm going to trust you to show me. And he led me to an Acts 29 church in St. Louis. Um, and here I am today. And, and then when you came out here, Acts 29, you looked us up mm -hmm. and landed, I guess, I saw a, a variety of Acts 29 churches, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. This was one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, um, I, I had contacted the, the pastors and the elders in St. Louis to say, you know, I'm, I'm moving out to Phoenix, and can you point me in the right direction? So we went on the, the network website, and, and I did. I found quite a few different churches, but because I was working at a university and spending all day kind of in the university setting, I wanted to be sure that I, I attended a church that had a little bit more age diversity than that. And so I, I found um, East Valley Bible Church, and um, the first Sunday I went, there was this crazy guy with long hair, and um, I just knew I was in the right spot. Uh, those were the good old yeah. days. Those were the good old days. Then when you got here, you started serving. That's a that's a key part of the story. Before when I first you know kind of had that coffee with Sandy and then came back and said, "Wow, this is she's pretty awesome," uh, which was everything I'd heard. I was able to vet her pretty closely because a lot of staff people would work with her. Mm -hmm. So I did all of that before they knew that that there may be some interest there because I didn't want them to give me a distorted version of who she was. But you had served in. Children's ministry, student ministries. Um, I had done uh, quite a bit with our community and global engagement groups. Um, went to Morocco, ministries. I think. Yeah, yeah, I went to Morocco. Okay, let me ask you a couple more because these are the questions that I get that, that kind of, what, what is it like to date an icon? Wow. I mean, I, I, that's probably one of those things that they just keep, I hear that all the time. Well, I know, yeah. I know, and I say, I'll ask her, I don't yeah. know. I don't yeah. know what it's like. Yeah, it, it's been really interesting um, to, well, you Wait, know, wait, wait, you shouldn't have an answer to this. Uh, I'm worried now. Really? Yeah. It uh, has been interesting. We had to sort through the, the 65 cases of water bottles in his garage. I have a lot of water in my garage. Yeah, those sorts of things, um, very interesting. Um, but it, it also has been um, really kind of fun as I've, We've, we've show, slowly um, told, you know, people um, that we're dating and all of that. And as I, as I tell people here in Phoenix that I'm dating, and I go on to say, and I'm dating Tom Schrader. Wow. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, no, seriously, that's been, um, it, 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 I mean, you know, yeah, it's more visible in that sense. But the girls have been absolutely fabulous in, in helping with that. Um, as well as, as just all of you here at church and um, for the awkwardness of it and at the same time the visibility and all of that, um, it, it's just been great. It Does really it has. seem like we well, didn't date very long? Was it just, what, what, what was the compelling 
characteristic and well it's your charm oh i wouldn't have said that <laughs> that's enough okay i'm done no 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 i'm done that's enough i i we i don't know how much to just talk about but enough to let you see hopefully that that things are are really good i get just a glimpse of sandy and a glimpse of what's what's been going on so uh we are happy we're thrilled like i said it's five days from now mm -hmm. so next friday i'll be here and teach it next sunday i'll give you a report on how it was uh, <laughs> uh it'll be awesome and uh, we just hope that you're as happy for us as we are really to be together. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. By the way, too, in the service time, that fits better at the end, except at the end is communion. So there's a, the transition here is not smooth because we're going to Joseph. So let's just go there and do that, all right? Uh, open your Bibles to Genesis 37. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you get a Bible from us, it's page 20. So like I said, we're going to look at the Genesis 37 to 50 and Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And uh, as always, though, we'll be looking at, at character studies, Joseph, Daniel, and the boys. God is the one who, who is our focus here. Uh, we kind of drop in, in a, in a sense, again, though Daniel is the key figure, Genesis 37, 2, these are the records of the generation of Jacob. Now, I'll tell you what we're going to do today. We're, we're looking at ver chapter 37, 38, 39. Uh, chapter 37, and I'll make some comments on it briefly, is if you're reading through, it's almost like a parenthetical insert because it's like Joseph, Judah, and then like all Joseph played out. Chapter 38 is uh, that study. It's a 20-year it's kind of overview of the life of Judah. It's really important in, in the overall story, not just of, of Joseph or Jacob or the boys, but of redemption. Through Judah comes the, the line that leads us to, to Jesus. It's a great story. If you read through there, man, it is X-rated. If we were to make a movie out of chapter 38, it's got some sick, dark stuff in it. And Judah's in the middle of it, but the rest of the story, as we get to the end of the book of Genesis about Judah, is a story of redemption and forgiveness. So the majority of Judah, we're going to look at the last week of the study. I've made about as much reference to it, maybe one more, as I will. So I'm going to really focus, though there's this bigger story, this focus on, on Joseph. Let me just read you a quote from the introduction of the commentary that James Boyce writes. He said, if ever there was a man for all seasons, it's Joseph. Joseph's life spanned the social spectrum of the ancient world. Raised as a future heir of the wealthy Jewish patriarch, he fell into slavery in the far-off Gentile land, but was later rose to a position of prominence as a second-in-command only to Pharaoh. He was loved and hated, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, exalted and abased. Yet at no point, and this becomes really important in here, at no point in the 110-year life of Joseph did he ever seem to get his eyes off God or cease to trust him. Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity didn't ruin him. He was the same in private as in public. He was truly a great man. The single greatest characteristic of Joseph was his absolute faithfulness to God under all circumstances. So that's what we're going to look at. As I said, the challenge is, I, I, I was talking to Neil. When Neil taught Genesis chapter 37, I think in that chapter he spent four weeks. Is that right? So he spent four weeks in that chapter. I have no idea how long in 39. 
maybe another three, four. So he spent seven weeks in this section we're going to spend a week on. Uh, when I taught it, as kind of an overview, I spent a week in, in chapter 37, a week in chapter 39. So when you take that, plus the time we just carved out, we've got to get a lot crammed in, done here in, in, in 38 minutes. Each of these lessons of these four are designed to be a standalone. So if, if you just came here today and you're going back to Duluth tomorrow, and you go, I'm not going to be here for the rest of the series, you can get a lot out of this. But I think as much as any series we've ever done, uh, this really will build each week. We literally, on the video, at the end of week one, two, and three, could put to be continued. So what I want to do is, is give you an overview of, of chapter 37 and 39, and then pull some practical points out. I'll do some as we go, and then kind of five summary points. What makes this even more complicated is your familiarity with these chapters. Like some of you have read this in, in the Hebrew. Some of you have memorized it. Uh, some of you are fluent in it. Some of you have read it. Some of you couldn't find it. And so I, I'm trying to figure out how much we can kind of assume and how much needs to be detailed. So this is really difficult. You, you should walk out and kind of go, boy, there's a lot there that we didn't get to. And if that's your assessment, the answer is yes. There's a lot we didn't get to. But I think... I think at 8.30, I did a pretty good hour of hitting the high points and just kind of applying it as we go. I don't want to make it a study of just Joseph and not apply it to us. It's an amazing story. I just made this list of wedth, betrayal, survival, success, sedu seduction, perseverance, triumph, reconciliation, restoration. So you're going to learn a lot, as I said, about Joseph, but you're going to learn a lot about yourself and you're going to learn a lot about God. And in Joseph's life, there is kind of that, that penthouse, outhouse, penthouse, outhouse, penthouse moment. And what you see is that in those inevitable tough times in life, important now, as well as the successful times in life, it, it, you see the faithfulness of this man, but you see the faithfulness of God. So often when we teach through the New Testament and we come to certain truths, we'll illustrate them through the Old Testament. Nowhere would this be more, more this, this is the kind of link we would have. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Nowhere could we illustrate that any better than the life of Joseph or Daniel, for that matter. So that's the whole thing. There's the story. Verse 3. Here's Joseph, and it tells us that Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made a very colored tunic for him. Uh, Joseph uh, had a, a favorite wife, Rachel, and, and jo I'm sorry, Jacob had a favorite wife, Rachel, and, and Joseph was his firstborn son of that relationship. And uh, he, was, he was a favorite for him. And it wasn't just that he had that internally. Uh, my mom, here you go, we'll use my mom. My, there's four boys. My mom's favorite is my brother John. Now, uh, for years she would never admit it until one night, put a little booze in her and got her to admit it, but now I'm teasing. But one night, you know, just in a state of confusion, she kind of acknowledged it. And, and it, that's not hurtful to me because I knew that anyway. If I 
were my own parent, I wouldn't like me. So, so it wouldn't even be a hard thing. John was easiest. John was the smartest. John was go. But, but it's one thing if, you, if, you, if your kid, you know, kind of is your favorite and you, and you know it. It's another thing if you kind of give him a, a, a little pendant that says, I'm, I'm dad's favorite. Well, that's what this coat was. It's, it's, it's a long sleeve garment, probably all the way down to his ankles. And it's, it's, it's very ornamental and, 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 and just showed for the boy. And... I, I think this is right. I think the only passing of personal property of land that we see in Jacob's life is to Joseph. So we go, this is, this is the favorite. And the other boys knew it. Now, they weren't as sophisticated as I am. Some go, yeah, I get it. I understand why. They hated him. Verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of them. Well, they saw it probably in the way he talked about him and treated him, but every day they saw that coat, it was a reminder, he's dad's favorite. And they hated him. In fact, they couldn't speak to him on friendly, friendly terms. Now, now, several of the commentators point out that, that it might have been, in a sense, for good reason that Joseph was dad's favorite and that their hatred might have been deeper than the favoritism it might have been that that joseph's existence and and in a sense his goodness his godliness his faithfulness was an offense to them personally because it exposed their sin they, they looked at him and said in their own mind we know what we are he's not that this is awful it, it's the same thing that we saw when we looked at John chapter 3 verse 19 we said the light of the world came into the world and that's Jesus and he exposes the darkness he exposes the sin he exposes the challenges and the, and the difficulties and the evilness that's in their life and, and that could be again the extent that Joseph has in their life Joseph has two dreams and they're very similar and, and he has these dreams but but doesn't keep them to himself he shares them. So we see the one that's uh, in verse 7, and they're binding sheaves in the field, and one rose up, and the other stood erect, and the others look around, and they bow down before it. And his brothers say, wait a minute, are you going to reign over us? Is that what's going to happen? Then he has another one, and, and it's a verse 9, lo, I still have another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down to me. And he's related to his father and his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow down around you? Now, again, on the surface, you'd be very critical of Joseph. Be pragmatic and say, listen, little man, if you're going to have these dreams, keep them to yourself. Use your head. Tell dad. Don't tell anybody else. There's another way to look at that. And it's to say, Joseph knew this was from God. And is in a sense doing a, a favor by communicating to mom and dad and brothers that, that this is what God's going to do. This is what's going to play itself out in the future. I've got a message from God. I'm convinced it's from him. And because of that, I, I really feel compelled to, to share this with you. It doesn't matter. The, pra the practical ramification of it, father stopped and contemplated it. That's what, we, that's what uh, we learn in verse whatever it is, verse 10. Father thought this through, like verse 11. But, but the brothers weren't. Now, look at the progression. 
There's a term that we find in the New Testament and the idea of the, of the root of bitterness. So look at verse 4. The brothers hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, they hated him even more. Verse 11, they're jealous of him. When we uh, looked at the book of Galatians, we talked about the fruit of the spirit. We talked about the fruit of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are evident. They're immorality and sorcery, but also strife, jealousy, disputes, anger. When Paul is uh, writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, he, he talks about us getting rid of things. And he said, let all bitter... And there's a, there's a sense here where it accelerates. It's internal, and then it explodes externally. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. It's something that gets into you and it takes root and then it begins to boil and it becomes outward, it becomes verbal, and ultimately it becomes violent. Well, there's a sense of what's, that's what's going on in this experience right here. The boys are mad, they hate him, they get more mad and more mad, and now they're jealous. But there's kind of a restraining factor in this, and that's the presence of Jacob. The, the boys really have no way, understanding that he's dad's favorite, they have no way of, of, of really manifesting this anger until, verse 12, the brothers are in the pasture and, of their father's flock at Shechem. And then Jacob decides unwisely that he's going to send Joseph on a reconnaissance trip and say, go gather information, if you would, about the boys, about their efforts, how that's going. And so he goes and, uh, on this mission, and he's in the Valley of Hebron, and he comes to Shechem, and, and he found a man, and he said, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the boys. I got a bunch of sheep. You should know them. Easy to recognize them. He said, no, no, no. They went on to Dothan. So what he's done is he's traveled 20 miles and 30 miles away from him. He's like 50 miles away from home now. So he's in a land, minus the protection of his father, and where the boys are free to respond without, at least in their mind, the restraint of what dad might do. Verse 18. When they, that's the boys, saw him, Joseph, at a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him and says, Let, let's put him to death. And then they said to one another, verse 19, here comes the dreamer. Let me hit the pause button. Let's do a little application. Because here's what they did. They just saw Joseph. That's the first thing that came to their mind. When you're walking down the hallway at work and there's people coming the other way, what do they say to one another when you come walking at them? Here comes the... What is it you want them to say? And to the extent that you have these things you want them to say, what are you doing to ensure that they would be able to say it? When we get in here one day and we're doing your memorial service and we pass around the microphone and people have the opportunity to share, what do you want them to say about you? Here you go, without having to lie. 
Because it's, it's like, you know, and everybody says good things at a, at a memorial service, got it. You never go, hey, you know what, I'm kind of glad he's gone. <laughs> we had a guy that we used to know and, and work with, and, and he had a, a habit of, of, of correcting you. He, he would, you, you would use a, a word, and he would point out how you've used it incorrectly. And I, I, I don't do that so much. I do it with certain phrases, like with Sandy. With early on, Sandy, Sandy said to me, I love you 110%. And I said, you know, that means nothing to me now because 110% is impossible. She said, well, that's all right. I meant 10%. I mean, it was like it, it degenerated. <laughs> but she'll use that phrase 100 times. I hate that. He tried, they gave 110% of effort. Well, I doubt they gave 100%, but they certainly couldn't give 110% by definition. So why are you cluttering, losing credibility with me as you insert that into a conversation? So periodically, I'll do things like that. But this guy would distinguish between words and verbs and tenses. And here's what I discovered is that apparently was a far more endearing quality after he was gone than when he was alive because we heard about this quirkiness at the, at the funeral and I was sitting next to a friend and said, it wasn't all that charming. At the funeral, what do you want him to say positively without lying? And then what are you doing to make that happen? What, what do they say? What's that first reaction when they see you? In the course of a conversation, they have, well, here you go, now with caller ID. Phone rings, your name pops up, bam, what do they think? Hey, how, how, often, how often does it ring once and then that's it, which means that decline? Oh, Tom Schrader, decline. I mean, how often does that happen? Back to the story, here comes the dreamer. And when he comes, they said, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And, and we'll say that, that there had been... There had been no temple prostitute. Where, where am I going? Temple prostitute. How to get him there? And, and, and uh, they'll say, here he, here he comes with the dreams, blah, 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 blah. Wild animal devoured him. Verse 21. Reuben heard this and, and, and rescued him out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. And his plan is to put him in this pit and then return and get him out, take him back to dad. And, and it, it looks noble. If it's truly noble, he'd take a stand and say, he's the oldest. He'd take a stand and go, here's, the, here, here's what this is. He could take the stand and he could, he could literally come and, and he could say, no, let's stop. Let's not do it. But he's going to come back and retrieve him and, and probably gain favor with dad. But by the time he's done that, the, the story has taken a different twist. So he comes and they lay hands on him, verse 23, and they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the multicolored tunic that was on him. Well, but they loved that moment to be able to tear that away, to be able to take that away. I imagine there wasn't much left of the tunic as they started ripping at that. Here's what's semi-pathological. Then they sat down and ate. Apparently, whatever they were doing, and it was disaster. It was, it was is really a dastardly deed. Even in the midst of it, apparently they they had no problem eating. They had taken and they'd thrown him into a pit. The pit was empty. There wasn't any water, and they sat down and ate. Now it's somewhat sketchy there, but the blanks get filled in in, in Genesis forty-two twenty-one. The boys are confronted now. They've come back to Egypt. There's Joseph. The boys now are being thrown into prison, and their mind flies back over these decades. And here's what they said to one another. Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we didn't listen to him. 
Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So now here's what we're learning. As they're taking Joseph, it's not that he just went away. All of a sudden, he said, don't do this. This isn't right. He's pleading for his life. He's begging for mercy. But there is none. Very American, entrepreneurial Judah in verse 26 says, hey, what profit is it if we kill our brother and cover him up? Why don't we sell him and make a little dough on this deal? This is Judah, by the way, same main character now that we're going to see in, in chapter 38. So they devise a plan. They uh, sell him to the Midianites as the traders are passing by. They pull him out and they lift him up and, and they sell him to the, to, then to the Ishmaelites. And, and what they do then is to take this, this tunic and they soak it in a male goat's blood and they bring it to their dad and he examines, examines it and his conclusion is verse 33, a wild beast has devoured him. Joseph's surely torn to pieces, and they don't bother in any way, shape, or form to correct him. Brothers and sisters come in to console him, but there is no consolation in this. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to, in Egypt to Potiphar, and Potiphar's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So to this chief, if you will, of the secret service, Potiphar. Now Joseph is transferred in terms of, of possession. So he goes from slavery here, he goes from the pot here into, into slavery in a foreign land, Egypt. Egypt was a wealthy land. It was a, a land that was known for mathematics and construction. Religiously, one commentator gives us this insight. So far as its religion was concerned, it was most ignorant and, and polytheistic of all the nations of the ancient world. Joseph's dropped into that and stopped. It'd be kind of interesting to go, wow, I wonder what Joseph did in this. And, and I, kind of, I kind of wonder, where, where, where's God in all of this? Clearly, there must have been something that Joseph did. And yet, by the way, we're never given any indication of that at all. In fact, all we see really, Joseph, other than you could maybe argue some strategic thing about sharing dreams, and, and all, all you could do is see good things in Joseph's life. And he's certainly faithful at every twist and turn that we're going to look at when we get to chapter 39. Joseph's taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him for the Ishmaelites. So we resume the story, the parenthetical insert in chapter 38. We're going to try to tie that together that last week that, that we're studying this. So three weeks from now. But here's where we, we, we find out where God is. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Look at verse 3. The Lord was with Joseph. Then there's an event, we'll come back and examine it, where Joseph is seduced, or at least Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him, and he resists, he does everything right, and then ends up not just in jail, but in the dungeon, in, in the inner bowels of the prison. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord is with Joseph. And he's not just with Joseph, I want you to see this, in some sort of an abstract way. 
Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became successful. Verse 3, the master saw the Lord was with Joseph and how God caused all things he did to, to prosper at his hand. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave favor, gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Verse 23, the Lord was with Joseph and whatever he did, the Lord made prosper. It is a giant mistake if you try to interpret your physical circumstances as being an accurate barometer of your spiritual condition. I mean, you stood back, you'd look at this and you go, Joseph, there must be something that you've done wrong. And we see that human tendency manifest itself often in, in biblical characters. So we see it in Job. Job, you must have done something. And the reality is, God's with him. God is there in the midst of what we might perceive to be very difficult circumstances. Why? Well, because God works in those circumstances. They, not only do they see that God is, is with Joseph in terms of just understanding it in some religious way, it's a very practical way because there's a, a transition and a correlation between the fact that God is with Joseph and he prospers. Let me stop the, the, and hit the pause button and, and try to do application again. In your life, your greatest asset in the marketplace is your faith. An active faith, a real faith, a faith that's, that's life-transforming. I've taught this before, but I've never made this, this final connection. I've thought about it, never did it till today. Because I've contended for a long time, your faith, Christian faith lived out, your faith lived out, is a great asset in the marketplace. And, and it's visible. That's verse 3. The master saw this. I went online today, and all I did was type in what employers want in employees. And so I'm sure there's all sorts of lists. But I got a list. So this is totally said. This is not some Christian thing. Totally secular. 11 characteristics. Six of them are kind of skills in terms of ability to speak and spell and technology. Five of them, though, I would say are highly relational that are manifestations of a love that, that you would have for Christ. Here are the five. Interpersonal skills. The ability to relate well to people from diverse backgrounds. So there's not a prejudice in there because God loves people and I love people and, and the, the idea is to relate to them. Uh, ethical application. How about this? The ability to apply moral standards and appreciate values in the work setting. So I just go to work and I do what's right because it's right. I can't worry about that. Not going to cheat. I know everybody else cheats, but I'm not going to. Career planning, the cultivation of a personal sense of direction and desire for improvement, including a willingness to learn. Who's more coachable than somebody that loves Christ? Because there's humility that's all through this person. Diversity awareness, demonstration and respect and empathy for diverse community. Think of Jesus and the woman on the well. Think of all of a sudden the barriers that break down. Jesus, the great women's liver. We come along, should come along, as we love Christ. We go, you know, it really doesn't matter to us what, what, what color you are or what your, what your background might be or what your, what your financial standing is. We love you because you're a person. Teamwork, the ability to encourage cooperation and collaboration and partnership. This has Christianity written all over it. So when you talk to somebody, and, and I always love this, I always distinguish in the service industry. Let me help you out in business. It's all service. 
I, I, I spent, you all know this, I spent seven years, I was in the hospital a ton. And, and we were talking about the other day. I've never been in a place where the employees are more anti, or you can, here's the corridor. I, this happened to me every time I went to the hospital. I hated this. The corridor is six feet wide. It's a thousand feet long. I'm walking down it. There's one person coming the other way, somebody on staff, and they won't say hello. To me. I don't understand how that can happen. I don't understand it. But that's just there. But let me tell you what. Let me tell you something. If you're in the hospital, that's pretty service-oriented. You know what? Everything's service-oriented. Sandy and I were at Oregano's the other night, and the place was just really busy. So we had a, we got over in the corner, because it was a 45-minute wait. Uh, God does not want me waiting 45 minutes to, to, eat, to eat an overpriced salad, okay? So at the, at the corner of the bar, you can sit at the bar, and then you get served right away if you want a salad. So we're sitting at there. And, and there's a chick working. Her name's Erin. I said with an E, and she goes, and an R, and an I, and an N. I said, really? So we started back and forth. She was awesome. Because she said, you know, are you guys just going to sit, or do you want something to eat, or are you just waiting for a table, or are you just going to have a, what do you want to do? And, and I said, I don't know. And ultimately, the, uh, the menus went away, and I said, I'd like to order. What's your employee number? Where's the, where's the card? How, how do I offer critique on you? And she fired back and said, it's, it's a regular's online. Just go to service. I'm number 22. She was great. We talk a while. And, and, and I said something and she said something. And, and, and she said, young life. I said, young life? Yeah. And she goes, I'm involved in young life. Oh, you're a believer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just started talking. I'm saying, she, she man, now it's her personality. But, but she manifested. If, I, if I'm Bob Oregano, this is who I want working for me right here. This is what I'm looking for in a person. And the same thing is true of your office, I think. Uh, here's the story. We got about 12 minutes. Here's the story. Out, out comes Potiphar. And Potiphar finds Joseph to be an amazing man. So he puts everything, verse 6, everything is in Joseph's charge. Joseph becomes the... CEO, if you will, of Potiphar Enterprises, and you know the story, Potiphar's wife then comes. She's a, she's a shy, subtle girl, so she sees Joseph and says, lay with me in verse 7. Now, I don't want to, here, here's my problem with this story, is so often we look at it and we think of Joseph as this little wimpy guy and, and who knows Potiphar's wife. But let me, let me bring it to life. Verse 6, last sentence, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Okay, so here's this virile, I was saying, he hasn't been around, he hasn't been around any women here in this whole prison thing. This virile, handsome, obviously appealing, attractive, charming, I mean, he, he's very winsome, fit. Who would he remind us of? <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, now, Ms. Potiphar doesn't say this. It does say that about Joseph. But here's how I go with Mrs. Potiphar. Okay, so Potiphar's a big guy. He's going to have a trophy wife. He's not going to have some dog that he's married to. She may not be able to spell Potiphar, but he's going to have this beautiful... I, I'm reading that into the story, okay? And, and the minute she starts to sag and bag and drag, boom, she's gone because he can trade them through real fast. Okay, see that? That changes the story, doesn't it? 
So here's Joseph finding his own business, and along comes Ms. Potiphar and says, lay with me, and he says no. But it's not a one-time deal. Verse 10, day after day after day after day after day. Till, till finally one day, verse 12, she grabs him by the garment, says, lay with me, and, and he left. He runs out, and she's there holding his tunic. Bonifer comes home, and she says, listen, here's what happens. Here's the charge. And verse 17, a little naggy here. The Hebrew slave who you brought to us. You can hear it. It's you. It's your fault. Now, Potiphar, and I, I got that I'm outside the text a little bit, but I, I, I think I'm right. Verse 19, she's rambling and rambling and rambling. It came up on the master, heard these words of his wife when she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, that he burned with anger. Now, here's my contention. Is the source of his anger isn't Joseph, it's Ms. Potiphar. I, I, I think he knows he's married to a hoe. I think he knows it. And here's how I know that he knows it. If he believed her, what would he have done? He'd have killed Joseph. He doesn't kill Joseph. In fact, a little bit later in the story, he's going to kind of get all back hooked up in everything. I think he knows, you know what? In fact, I could even say, him, Joseph, I'm really sorry here. There's really nothing I can do here. I got to do something. No, I can't. I'm not going to kill you because you don't deserve that. But I'm going to take you. This isn't good. But I'm going to take you and put you into the jail, verse 20, into the place where the king's prisoners are confined. And that's where he was jailed. I'm going to put you in the bowels of the jail. Worst part. It's better than killing you. That's all I can do. Now, there's about 88 ways to go here, but I skipped a big verse, verse 9. I skipped this big verse because he's refusing the master and he's pointing out, listen, he hasn't withheld anything from me. Nobody's greater in this whole house than me. He's talking to Ms. Potiphar. I couldn't do this. The only thing he's kept from me is you. You're his wife. But here's the overriding factor. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? See, he's not motivated just by his circumstances, but he understands it's this relationship God that's going to drive this thing. I can't do this. Not, not, not for Potiphar. That, I, I, I couldn't do it to him. But ultimately, I couldn't sin against God. See, it's that, that honest, fair in our case, biblical theology that sustains him and perseveres, allows him to persevere in the midst of really difficult circumstances. Let me tell you what, I, I, tell you, I could see myself going two ways on this thing. One of me going, wow, look at her. There's not a guy around that's not going to understand this. There's not a guy around, if I get caught at all, there's nobody here. It's, it's possible that, that nobody will ever tell. And certainly after once or twice or three, but day after day, come on. And then there's nobody here. And you can hear say, listen, Joseph, nobody's ever going to know. I'm not going to tell you. You're going to tell nobody. I could, so I could see him cave at that point, or I see myself cave at that point. But he doesn't. Here's the next thing. If I got to that moment, I'm not sure I could handle what comes next. 
Now I'm in prison. So as they're dragging me to prison, I can hear the discussion in my mind going, this is interesting, God. So let's review. I'm my dad's favorite because I'm the one faithful one out of all these boys. So all I did was fake, all I did was communicate the dream what you communicated to me. All I did was communicate that to them. And they put me in slavery. Then I get to Egypt. Didn't do anything there. I'm in Potiphar. I'm in slavery. I work hard. He can see the manifestation of that. This comes about. Now I'm God, apparently following you isn't very beneficial. Certainly not good for a career move. And not very satisfying. But I'm pretty sure that Joseph didn't respond that way. Let me give you five points. I'll expand that one as kind of the close. Number one, that I learned from this, theology affects behavior. Because look what happens next. He's in jail, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Joseph understood God. He didn't necessarily understand exactly what God was doing at this moment. But I, here's what I know. There's no record of him complaining. Here's what I know. There wasn't any complaining. There wasn't any pouting. There wasn't any self-pity. How do I know? Because that's not very winsome. And whatever it was about Joseph, Potiphar saw it, the chief jailer saw it. If he was down there pouting and accusations and all this, he's not going to put him in charge of everything. Here's the second thing. is Suffering has purpose. I started writing a bunch of stuff about suffering, but this, suffering and hardship doesn't mean that God's somehow abandoned you, but he's allowing you to, to see him in the, in, in the midst of it. Suffering allows us to see God work, and we know God causes all things to work together for good. The whole perseverance part, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. So how do I grow? How do I get strong? Well, I get to see God work. Work through suffering and pain and hardship, and the end result is perseverance. stick It's the suffering that builds character. There's the third point. Faith is obviously visible, and it's attractive. By the way, we see that really throughout Scripture often, but I, I thought of, I kind of think, okay, there must be another illustration I can go to pretty quickly of that. I, I thought of the book of Philippians where Paul's in jail, and he's, got, he, he's, he's chained to jailers all day, and he writes this, Philippians 1.12, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. So now God's using this whole thing to expand the gospel. He says, way more than that, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. He said, and, and, and my imprisonment has encouraged the brothers. This faith, Potiphar sees it, the chief jailer sees it, and they're not repelled by it. Here's what they say. I, I don't want your God, but I want the benefits of your God. 
I'm not interested in worshiping your God, but I'll let you do that for me. You come and you work for me. Here's the fourth thing, that time is your ally. There's a period of time that's covered here of decades that we see in Joseph's life. We tend to think of, of time as our enemy. It's kind of, Sandy and I were, were talking about the difference between getting married at 22 and 62. And it's very, we were just talking about it. It's, very, it's just very different. You're 22. You're planning your life. You're planning your future. You're thinking about this. Is, I didn't mention, but Sandy and I are going to try to have a family. No, are you kidding? Are you think I'm nuts? <laughs> I'd have kept the dog if I wanted that. <laughs> Out of your mind. But, I'm, but, but she, so we're talking about it. You know, like all those things that you talk about that take like a long time. We gotta, all we got to do is make sure when we go into a town, we know where the hospital is. I mean, that's all I got to do. I don't even know anything else. And, and, and so I've had, we had, had some very serious, because I'm really serious about it, very serious conversations. Because she's 15 years younger than I am, and I told her actuarially, you know, and I'm not a healthy, I, you know, I stared, did I mention I stared death? I stared death right in the face <laughs> earlier this month. And really subsequently, but I don't want to talk about it. But, but, I, but I'm saying, you know, Sandy, let me just tell you, because I know what that's like. That's really hard. Because you're going to be like the provider. And she said, it's really weird. At 22, you're kind of planning your future. At 62, you're kind of planning your death. So I kind of, like, I, I, I really love Sandy. And, and, and I really enjoy being with her. And, like, if I have a regret, I'm kind of going, my biological clock is ticking here. But time is your ally. Remember the old saying? We try to get it in the water here. Most people overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a decade. Everything has a way of kind of evening out as God works through things at his pace. And here's the, the last obvious point. God's economy is clearly different than ours. Joseph is succeeding. Really? He's in jail. Yeah, in God's economy. Now, man also sees the prosperity around him in that limited sense. But you made the argument, how successful can he be? I mean, this isn't what I call success. It might not be, but it's what God calls success. By the way, Joseph's not at a scary place. He's at the safest place he can be because he's right where God wants him. Remember what I said at the beginning? To be continued? We'll just build on that all the way along through these entire four weeks. Here comes uh, Jake to, to lead us here in the chapel in our time of communion over in the, in the conference center. The guys are going to come and close the service. But let me pray as, as Jake comes to lead us in communion. Father, thank you for that truth. And uh, we look at Joseph, we know that, that uh, we see his life and there's so many parallels in ours. Let us be faithful in the midst of adversity and challenges and difficulties. God, we love you. We worship you. We pray that you would work in our life the way you worked in Joseph's life. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.